This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Welcome back to EM Pulse. So today we're going to talk about airway. One of our unique jobs as emergency physicians is managing the emergent airway. And we all know how challenging this can be in the middle of a chaotic situation with an unstable patient. Maybe there's facial trauma or the patient is vomiting or under CPR. But whatever the situation, it definitely gets our adrenaline pumping. So we interviewed Dr. Verena Shandera, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and co-director of the Emergency Airway Fellowship here at UC Davis. She's got some great tips and tricks, so let's dive right into the interview. Okay, Verena, so I was here for your fellowship, but tell me what exactly is a difficult airway fellowship? So an emergency airway management fellowship, what it really entails is a one-year experience on where you get to really hone in your airway skills. It's post-residency and it's non-ACGME, which allows you to really structure it and design it how you want to design it and what you want to focus on. There is one similar fellowship at Hennepin that is very research-based. At UC Davis, the way that I structured my year was really being very collaborative with lots of different specialties. So I got to learn from ENT, from pediatric anesthesia, from anesthesia, from surgery, critical care. And I would rotate through all of these different services, but really just focusing on airway management. That allowed me to take the time to see different approaches, to see airway management from different angles that has been very useful in my career so far. In the ER, what are some common things that make an airway difficult? So I would say that our job alongside maybe critical care is probably the most difficult in that sense because none of our patients are pre-opt, right? We have very little knowledge often of what their airway anatomy entails. We have to deal with trauma airways, for example, which are often problematic because of their distorted anatomy, because of blood in the airway. But we also deal with the physiologically difficult airways, right? So we don't have patients that have perfect blood pressures. All of our patients have full stomachs. So it's very important to think about the different physiology that we have to deal with. It's completely undifferentiated, right? So we don't know if a patient has right heart failure. We can maybe do some tests to figure out that before we have to manage the airway, but often we don't have the time. So that really puts it as a disadvantage and makes us need to be the masters of undifferentiated airway management, really. When you see a patient come through the emergency department, whether you need to intubate them or not, I'm sure you're kind of like <laughs> assessing all people and grading them based off of their potential for a difficult airway. How do you identify a difficult airway? So in my head, again, I think about two big considerations. So anatomically, right? I look at them. I look, do they have a big beard? Do they have restricted mouth opening? Do they have restricted neck mobility? I think about those things. There are mnemonics. For example, the difficult airway course has a bunch of mnemonics that will tell you, you know, are they going to be difficult to intubate? Are they going to be difficult to re-oxygenate or to pre-oxygenate? And are they going to be a difficult surgical airway? But the first thing I do is just look at my patient, look at their outside kind of facial anatomy, have them move their neck, have them open their mouth to assess if I'm going to run into any difficulties. The second big thing that I look at is the physiology, right? So is this patient a septic patient that's going to get hypotensive when I intubate them? Do I have to optimize them before I intubate them? 
it's a big topic on what I do when I look at my patients. But I think memorizing mnemonics is one thing, but just kind of having a, a gut feeling of when you look at your patient to, to sense the danger is really important. So I've been out of residency for a few years now. <laughs> what are some of the updates that we've had recently in terms of airway management? Of course. And again, a, a big topic, right? So I thought about this question a little bit beforehand. And I think we've come a long way in, let's say, new devices and all of our video laryngoscopes are excellent. But I think kind of taking it back a bit further, I think about 10 years ago, we started thinking about first, it was only the anatomy of the airway, right? Are we going to have blood in the airway? How are we going to get rid of that? Then we started thinking about the physiology of the airway. Do we have to start patients on pressors before we intubate them to, you know, minimize the post-intubation hypotension and cardiac arrest? But I think the biggest topic right now in kind of between the airway experts is that we're really thinking about the psychological aspect of airway management, right? We work in an uncontrolled setting. So when I think about the psychological part of airway management, I think about I need to control my patient in order to properly pre-oxygenate them in order to properly position them to do all the things that I need to do to have a um, successful laryngoscopy. And I also think about managing my team. We often are in very stressful situations, right? And we need to kind of think about it as flying an airplane, right? Everybody needs to be closed loop communication. The patient needs to be as optimized as they can be, and so does our team. So I would say in the last maybe two or three years, there has been a heavy focus on the psychological aspect of airway management. One of the strategies that I use is projective pessimism. So I think about the worst possible scenario, right? I think about what do I have to do if I do not obtain this airway? Do I have to reoxygenate with an SGA, with a supraglottic airway? Do I have to do a surgical airway? When I think about it, it allows me to be more calm about the potential quote-unquote bad outcome. Some people also, I don't tend to do that, but some people also do a kind of 10-second meditation before they start managing an airway because we know that as heart rate goes up, our fine motor skills go down and we want to prevent that. What about equipment-wise? Are there any new tools or techniques? Again, kind of three big categories in how I think of it. So we have really focused on pre-oxygenation and, you know, things like high-flow nasal cannula, of course, have been used more frequently in the last couple of years, using a BVM, using positive pressure to properly pre-oxygenate your patient. But then also, we're really starting to think about apneic oxygenation, right? So everybody knows, you know, leaving a nasal cannula on at 15 liters is important as soon as the non-rebreather comes off. But what about those critically ill patients that need some ventilation during induction? So that's also a very important topic that has recently crystallized is that we need to really ventilate those patients. Of course, when we are ventilating them, we want to make sure that we're not insufflating their stomach and that we're, you know, causing regurgitation and vomiting. But you can really prevent a buildup of CO2 and in turn, you won't drop your pH as much as you would if you're not doing that. How do you not insufflate the stomach while providing ventilation? Because I'm assuming that you're saying BVM or are you talking about in a supraglottic airway to be able to ventilate during induction? Yes. So you could do both. Um, most commonly, I would say in kind of the progression of RSI, most people will use a BVM, though an SGA is not a bad idea. 
especially if you think that they're difficult to reoxygenate or pre-oxygenate, both of them. They have to be paralyzed because you want to make sure that they're not vomiting when you place the device. If you are using a BVM, I always think low and slow. So you want to do low pressures, right, not to open up the esophageal sphincter, and you want to do low volumes. Important to know, again, your equipment, because many of the BVM bags have very large reservoirs. And so if you're giving it a good squeeze, you will empty about a liter into the patient's airway slash stomach. And if that is your method of ventilation during induction or, you know, during the apneic period, you may have made a somewhat difficult airway a lot more difficult. (laughs) Um, So I say low and slow. We do have some newer BVMs at UC Davis where there's a manometer, so you know how much pressure you're delivering. And on top of that, there is a little light that blinks how often you should give a breath. So a trick that I also have is I like to hold my bag underhand instead of overhand, which then means you you feel like the bag is not slipping out of your hand, and I think it helps you improve your bagging skills. You just deliver less volume. And then one thing you asked, Sarah, is about the other devices. So I think, you know, in the last 10 years, obviously, video laryngoscopy has made huge strides, and everybody should be using it. And then thinking about using large bore suction, right? So we know that any fluid in the airway is our enemy. And so using any kind of large bore suction device, there's a couple of different ones on the market. And of course, I'm not endorsing one over the other, is a very important component of airway management. What about medication management? Is there anything that has evolved as far as the best kind of meds or meds that we should avoid? the newest hype on the market was ketamine and the pendulum has kind of, you know, swung to the right. First, everybody was using ketamine. Now has kind of swung back to the middle. I would say as a sedative agent, both automate and ketamine are fine. And then, you know, depending on where you work, you're going to be using rocuronium or succinylcholine. I think more importantly than what medication you're given is that, first of all, your vital signs are stable before you give that medication because most of them will cause, especially the sedatives, will cause some hemodynamic instability. And then when you're giving the paralytic to really give it dose appropriate, right? So we often underdose our paralytics and we know that when we're doing that, we decrease our chance for first pass success. And the increase in frequency of trying to get an endotracheal tube, you will just have a harder time with every pass. Now, I'm an ultrasound person. Do you find ultrasound useful in the management of a difficult airway? Absolutely. So I use it kind of in three different ways. So I think about it kind of how I think about, you know, pre-oxygenation, apneic oxygenation, and then post-intubation stuff. I think about it with ultrasound the same way. So I do a lot of assessment with my ultrasound beforehand because you want to know if the patient is fluid overloaded. You want to know how good their heart contracts, right? If they've got any kind of problem with their right ventricle, if they have a pneumothorax, how flat their IVC is, it can be a very useful tool. If I'm anticipating a very difficult airway, then I will sometimes use ultrasound to mark out the cricothyroid membrane. We know that, of course, after attempting the airway and for whatever reason, if you're not able to get the ET tube, that that landmark may move slightly, but it gives you somewhat of an idea where you need to go when you're making your incision, especially when our patients are a little bit more generous, have a little bit more generous necks, right? That's a very useful tool. And kind of going back to the psychological aspect of airway management is that when you have the feeling you know where the cricothyroid membrane is, it makes you feel better. And that also means that you're calmer. 
You can use ultrasound to look for endotracheal tube placement, though we don't have many studies that validate that, big studies on real patients. For example, in low-resource settings where they don't have capnography or chest X-ray readily available, I think it's a very useful tool. How about a patient that has potential cervical spine injury, you know, one of our trauma patients that comes through? How do you manage that airway when you are concerned about cervical spine injury? So we know that trauma patients are going to be more difficult to intubate than, you know, a normal, not in C-spine precaution patient. We also know that with video laryngoscopy, we're really causing minimal movement of the spine. So in order to give myself the best view, what I do is I will take off the front of the C-collar and I will position the patient correctly, right? So if you can, put the stomach under the glottic opening, so reverse Trendelenburg. And then somebody is going to hold manual inline stabilization. You can do that from the side of the bed, making sure not to restrict it to jaw. Or you can do it from the head of the bed, kind of crouching under the intubator. And with that, you're holding inline C-spine mobilization essentially, but you're allowing yourself to be able to lift the jaw and all of the soft tissue so that you have good visualization of the glottic opening. When the C-collar is removed, I try to even do that before I manage the airway because you want to make sure that you're not missing some crepitus or a possible tracheal fracture or some tracheal deviation. It should be part of our trauma assessment. We often forget it. So I essentially take off the front part of the collar twice, once to do the primary assessment and then the second time to do the airway management. And then it also allows you, when that collar is gone, when you go to place the endotracheal tube, to do extra laryngeal manipulation, either yourself or whoever is helping you manage that airway. And how do you do that manipulation? You essentially grab the thyroid complex and you kind of wiggle it or you move it from the left to the right. And ideally, the person who is doing the extra laryngeal manipulation can see what they're doing on the camera, on the video that's you know attached, obviously, to the laryngoscope. And it allows them to see if they're improving the view or making the view worse for the intubator. Okay, now can you tell me a little bit about the importance of having a difficult airway algorithm in place in your emergency department? A difficult airway algorithm is very important. There's many different ones, and I'm, of course, not endorsing one of them. The difficult airway course has one. Levitan has one. Um, Nick Crimes has a Vortex. The Society of Airway Management, they're all accessible online. But I think about a difficult airway algorithm kind of like a roadmap, right? So you don't want to just punch in your address when you drive somewhere. You want to look at the map, right? You don't want to have to look at the map when you have to make a right or left turn or when you diverted by traffic. Same thing with a difficult airway algorithm. Think about all the things that could go wrong before they can go wrong. And even more important than you thinking about it is communicate that to your team. Because the worst part in airway management is you doing the same wrong thing over and over again, right? So if you have told your, whoever it is, your RT or your nurse or your resident or even another attending who's helping, if you have told them that you're going to attempt this laryngoscopy twice and then you're going to switch to a different blade, and if that doesn't work, you're going to put in an SGA to, to reoxygenate, they're going to hold you accountable, right? And that's going to really prevent a lot of bad outcomes, essentially, in all airway management. And we're going to put links to several of these algorithms in the show notes, too, so people can check them out. So how can emergency physicians stay up to date on managing difficult airways? 
So staying up to date on your airway management skills is really important. I think the first rule is if you can, get your hands on a laryngoscope as often as you can, right? So if that's during simulation, if that, if that is during medical student teaching, if that's during, you know, if you're teaching the paramedics, just holding the laryngoscope and even doing kind of the movements and endotracheal tube placement on a mannequin is going to be very helpful. Now, if you're working in an academic setting, most of the time the residents will be performing the endotracheal tube intubation, right? So important to video those intubations because just by watching the video after the actual endotracheal tube placement, yourself and the learner is going to learn a ton, right? So seeing the anatomy over and over again, not in the heat of the moment when you're actually looking down, right, and trying to find the uvula, trying to find the epiglottis, but being able to slow it down and really see blade placement, what happens when you incrementally inch forward, right, what happens to all of the structures, that's going to be hugely important. There are a lot of airway courses that one can take. And I do suggest, right, there's cadaver courses. If you do have the resources to participate in one of them, it's very helpful to do that every couple of years. And then just reading, you know, the newest literature or updates on, again, the difficult airway algorithms or what drugs are kind of in style is also very important. Another thing that, you know, I don't advocate to do for every patient and especially not for the patients that were worried about increased ICP or any kind of intracranial bleeding is that if the resident has intubated the patient and successfully placed the endotracheal tube, you know, we've confirmed that with capnography, the patient is not unstable. As an attending, you can use the laryngoscope and very, very carefully, obviously without touching any structures, help place the OG tube. So what that allows you is, you know, you're going through those movements. Again, you don't want to do that if the patient has increased ICP because you don't want any bad outcomes. But if you are gently inserting the blade and lifting the structures and identifying all of them, you obviously see the glottic opening with the endotracheal tube in it, but you're identifying the vocal cords and then you just put the orogastric tube into the esophagus where it should go. You now know that you could have intubated that patient. So that is something that Eric actually taught me when I was a second year. I would always ask him, what is he doing? And I think it has really kept up my skills. Again, this is only in a very stable patient that we're not worried about increasing their ICP. And any other tips for our colleagues in the community? To get their hands, make friends with an anesthesiologist. <laughs> You know, I think it was so great when we did our anesthesia rotation as a resident. We got to try all these different things. You know, if they have somebody who lets them intubate under very controlled conditions, that would be, you know, the best option. And especially trying, you know, trying, obviously, everybody should have one favorite blade that they can get most airways with, but trying different things, right? Having some time to use bimanual laryngoscopy, to always do progressive epiglottoscopy, to have the time to practice that would be ideal. So, you know, homework is everybody should make a friend with an anesthesiologist. And I think also all the society conferences that people go to, you can look out for those airway courses, get some time with mannequins at least and with new equipment. Yeah. And they may even be right. Even if you're in a community, maybe there's a bigger academic center, you know, around and I'm sure they, most of them have a simulation center. I know that for all of our grads, they're always welcome to come back. We have multiple difficult or not so difficult airway days during the year. So I think that's a great way to participate in and keeping up your airway skills. All right. Any final thoughts for us? 
I love airway stuff and I could talk about it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I say, you know, one thing that I I forgot to mention when we talked about the psychological aspect of airway management, it's like phone a friend, right? So like, don't be shy to get another attending in the room. Discuss kind of your strategies. There's so many different ways to approach airway management that I think the more the merrier. And I think um, it'll make you feel more calm. You probably learn a new technique. Never be too proud, right, to give up the blade if you feel like you have given a given it a good good attempt and for some reason this airway is more difficult than you thought. And last but not least, you shall not forget your superglottic airway, right? With the invention of video, all of our new great devices and a superglottic airway that you can intubate through, we're pretty unbeatable in airway management, right? And if you do have to go to a surgical airway, don't shy away from it. It's not a complication. Sometimes it's a necessary step. Yeah, I like that. We think about that as our rescue airway, but a lot of times we're really nervous about going there, but we know how to do this. We can do this. And if you need to go there, go there. Correct. 